Chapter Nine of Matilda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. Matilda by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Chapter Nine. Thus I passed two years. Day after day, so many hundreds wore on. They brought no outward changes with them, but some few slowly operated on my mind as I glided on towards death. I began to study more, to sympathize more in the thoughts of others as expressed in books, to read history, and to lose my individuality among the crowd that had existed before me. Thus, perhaps, as the sensation of immediate suffering wore off, I became more human. Solitude also lost to me some of its charms. I began again to wish for sympathy, not that I was ever tempted to seek the crowd, but I wished for one friend to love me. You will say, perhaps, that I gradually became fitted to return to society. I do not think so, for the sympathy that I desired must be so pure, so divested of influence from outward circumstances, that in the world I could not fail of being balked by the gross materials that perpetually mingle even with its best feelings. Believe me, I was then less fitted for any communion with my fellow-creatures than before. When I left them, they had tormented me, but it was in the same way as pain and sickness may torment, something extraneous to the mind that galled it, and that I wished to cast aside. But now I should have desired sympathy, I should wish to knit my soul to some one of theirs, and should have prepared myself plentiful draughts of disappointment and suffering, for I was tender as the sensitive plant, all nerve. I did not desire sympathy and aid in ambition or wisdom, but sweet and mutual affection, smiles to cheer me, and gentle words of comfort. I wished for one heart in which I could pour unrestrained my plaints, and by the heavenly nature of the soil, blessed fruit might spring from such bad seed. Yet how could I find this? The love that is the soul of friendship is a soft spirit seldom found, except when two amiable creatures are knit from early youth, or when bound by mutual suffering and pursuits. It comes to some of the elect unsought and unaware, it descends as gentle dew on chosen spots, which, however barren they were before, become, under its benign influence, fertile in all sweet plants. But when desired, it flies. It scoffs at the prayers of its votaries. It will bestow, but not be sought. I knew all this, and did not go to seek sympathy. But there, on my solitary heath, under my lowly roof, where all around was desert, it came to me, as a sunbeam in winter, to adorn while it helps dissolve the drifted snow. Alas, the sun shone on blighted fruit. I did not revive under its radiance, for I was too utterly undone to feel its kindly power. My father had been, and his memory was the life of my life. I might feel gratitude to another, 
but I could never more love or hope as I had done. It was all suffering. Even my pleasures were endured, not enjoyed. I was as a solitary spot among mountains, shut in on all sides by steep black precipices, where no ray of heat could penetrate, and from which there was no outlet to sunnier fields. And thus it was, that although the spirit of friendship soothed me for a while, it could not restore me. It came as some gentle visitation. It went, and I hardly felt the loss. The spirit of existence was dead within me. Be not surprised, therefore, that when it came I welcomed not more gladly, or when it departed I lamented not more bitterly, the best gift of heaven, a friend. The name of my friend was Woodville. I will briefly relate his history, that you may judge how cold my heart must have been, not to be warmed by his eloquent words and tender sympathy, and how he also, being most unhappy, we were well fitted to be a mutual consolation to each other, if I had not been hardened to stone by the Medusa head of misery. The misfortunes of Woodville were not of the heart's core like mine. His was a natural grief, not to destroy, but to purify the heart, and from which he might, when its shadow had passed from over him, shine forth brighter and happier than before. Woodville was the son of a poor clergyman, and had received a classical education. He was one of those very few whom fortune favours from their birth, on whom she bestows all gifts of intellect and person, with a profusion that knew no bounds, and whom, under her peculiar protection, no imperfection, however slight, or disappointment, however transitory, has leave to touch. She seemed to have formed his mind of that excellence, which no dross can tarnish, and his understanding was such that no error could pervert. His genius was transcendent, and when it rose as a bright star in the east, all eyes were turned towards it in admiration. He was a poet. That name has so often been degraded that it will not convey the idea of all that he was. He was like a poet of old, whom the muses had crowned in his cradle, and on whose lips bees had fed. As he walked among other men, he seemed encompassed with a heavenly halo, that divided him from, and lifted him above them. It was his surpassing beauty, the dazzling fire of his eyes, and his words, whose rich accents wrapped the listener, in mute and ecstatic wonder, that made him transcend all others, so that before him they appeared only formed to minister to his superior excellence. He was glorious from his youth. Every one loved him. No shadow of envy or hate, cast even from the meanest mind, ever fell upon him. He was, as one, the peculiar delight of the gods, railed and fenced in by his own divinity, so that naught but love and admiration could approach him. His heart was simple like a child, unstained by arrogance or vanity. He mingled in society unknowing of his superiority over his companions, not because he undervalued himself, but because he did not perceive the inferiority of others. He seemed incapable of conceiving of the full extent of the power that selfishness and vice possess in the world. When I knew him, 
although he had suffered disappointment in his dearest hopes, he had not experienced any that arose from the meanness and self-love of men. His station was too high to allow of his suffering through their hard-heartedness, and too low for him to have experienced ingratitude and encroaching selfishness. It is one of the blessings of a moderate fortune, that by preventing the possessor from conferring pecuniary favours, it prevents him also from diving into the arcana of human weakness or malice. To bestow on your fellow-men is a godlike attribute. So indeed it is, and as such, not one fit for mortality. The giver, like Adam and Prometheus, must pay the penalty of rising above his nature, by being the martyr to his own excellence. Woodville was free from all these evils, and if slight examples did come across him, he did not notice them, but passed on in his course, as an angel with winged feet might glide along the earth, unimpeded by all those little obstacles, over which we of earthly origin stumble. He was a believer in the divinity of genius, and always opposed a stern disbelief to the objections of those petty cavillers and minor critics who wish to reduce all men to their own miserable level. I will make a scientific simile, he would say, in the manner, if you will, of Dr. Darwin. I consider the alleged errors of a man of genius as the aberrations of the fixed stars. It is our distance from them, and our imperfect means of communication, that makes them appear to move. In truth, they always remain stationary, a glorious centre, giving us a fine lesson of modesty, if we would thus receive it. I have said that he was a poet. When he was three-and-twenty years of age, he first published a poem, and it was hailed by the whole nation with enthusiasm and delight. His good star perpetually shone upon him. A reputation had never before been made so rapidly. It was universal. The multitude extolled the same poems that formed the wonder of the sage in his closet. There was not one dissentient voice. It was at this time, in the height of his glory, that he became acquainted with Eleanor. She was a young heiress of exquisite beauty, who lived under the care of her guardian. From the moment they were seen together, they appeared formed for each other. Eleanor had not the genius of Woodville, but she was generous and noble, and exalted by her youth, and the love that she everywhere excited above the knowledge of aught but virtue and excellence. She was lovely. Her manners were frank and simple. Her deep blue eyes swam in a lustre, which could only be given by sensibility, joined to wisdom. They were formed for one another, and they soon loved. Woodville, for the first time, felt the delight of love, and Eleanor was enraptured in possessing the heart of one so beautiful and glorious among his fellow-men. Could anything but unmixed joy flow from such a union? Woodville was a poet. He was sought for by every society, and all eyes were turned on him alone when he appeared. But he was the son of a poor clergyman, and Eleanor was a rich heiress. Her guardian was not displeased with their mutual affection. The merit of Woodville was too eminent to admit of Cavill on account of his inferior wealth. But the dying will of her father did not allow her to marry before she was of age. 
and her fortune depended upon her obeying this injunction. She had just entered her twentieth year, and she and her lover were obliged to submit to this delay. But they were ever together, and their happiness seemed that of paradise. They studied together, formed plans of future occupations, and drinking in love and joy from each other's eyes and words, they hardly repined at the delay to their entire union. Woodville for ever rose in glory, and Eleanor became more lovely and wise under the lessons of her accomplished lover. In two months Eleanor would be twenty-one. Everything was prepared for their union. How shall I relate the catastrophe to so much joy? But the earth would not be the earth. It is covered with blight and sorrow, if one such pair as these angelic creatures had been suffered to exist for one another. Search through the world, and you will not find the perfect happiness which their marriage would have caused them to enjoy. There must have been a revolution in the order of things as established among us miserable earth-dwellers to have admitted of such consummate joy. The chain of necessity ever bringing misery must have been broken, and the malignant fate that presides over it would not permit this breach of her eternal laws. But why should I repine at this? Misery was my element, and nothing but what was miserable could approach me. If Woodville had been happy, I should never have known him. And can I, who for many years was fed by tears, and nourished under the dew of grief, can I pause to relate a tale of woe and death? Woodville was obliged to make a journey into the country, and was detained from day to day in irksome absence from his lovely bride. He received a letter from her to say that she was slightly ill, but telling him to hasten to her, that from his eyes she would receive health, and that his company would be her surest medicine. He was detained three days longer, and then he hastened to her. His heart, he knew not why, prognosticated misfortune. He had not heard from her again. He feared she might be worse, and this fear made him impatient and restless, for the moment of beholding her once more stand before him, arrayed in health and beauty, for a sinister voice seemed always to whisper to him, You will never more behold her as she was. When he arrived at her habitation, all was silent in it. He made his way through several rooms. In one he saw a servant weeping bitterly. He was faint with fear, and could hardly ask, is she dead? And just listened to the dreadful answer. Not yet. These astounding words came on him, as of less fearful import than those which he had expected, and to learn that she was still in being, and that he might still hope, was an alleviation to him. He remembered the words of her letter, and he indulged the wild idea that his kisses, breathing warm love and life, would infuse new spirit into her, and that with him near her she could not die, that his presence was the talisman of her life. He hastened to her sick-room. She lay, her cheeks burning with fever, yet her eyes were closed, and she was seemingly senseless. He wrapped her in his arms, he imprinted breathless kisses on her burning lips, 
he called to her, in a voice of subdued anguish, by the tenderest names. Return, Eleanor, I am with you, your life, your love. Return, dearest one, you promised me this boon, that I should bring you health. Let your sweet spirit revive, you cannot die near me. What is death? To see you no more? Depart with what is a part of myself, without whom I have no memory, and no futurity. Eleanor, die. This is frenzy, and the most miserable despair. You cannot die while I am near. And again he kissed her eyes and lips, and hung over her inanimate form in agony, gazing on her countenance, still lovely, although changed, watching every slight convulsion, and varying colour, which denoted life, still lingering, although about to depart. Once, for a moment, she revived and recognised his voice. A smile, a last, lovely smile, played upon her lips. He watched beside her for twelve hours, and then she died. End of chapter 9